Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering. I'm the editor of Ruler and this is Ruler Conversations. It's launch week for the latest edition of the magazine, Ruler 117, The Body Issue. I'm going to be joined today by Ruler's staff writer, Rachel Jarry, to talk about a few of the features in the new mag. We'll also cover Rachel's trip to Singapore to see the biggest stars of the World Tour race head-to-head, and there'll be brief extracts from our features with EF Tibco rider Lizzie Banks and Instagram influencer Bo Markson. Our tech correspondent, Dan Cavallari, will be checking in from Colorado in the second half of this podcast to talk 3D printed saddles with the marketing and product managers of Salitalia. Rachel, what's caught your eye in the world of cycling recently? Well, we've just seen the first ever edition of the Women's UAE Tour come to a close. And that was super exciting. I think a lot of people saw the profiles for the stages and kind of thought it might be a bit of a boring race just because it was so flat and the roads there are so wide and exposed and you never really know what to expect. But the wind caused chaos, like the crosswinds were crazy. And that made it so entertaining, like even the flat sprint stages. I guess there were kind of like two key stories that came from that race. There was the sort of sprint stages between Lorena Weebs and Charlotte Cool, who were teammates last year, but are now on rival teams this year. Um, last year, Cool was leading out Lorena Weebs, but they're now sprinting head to head. And um, Cool got the better of Lorena Weebs on two of the three stages. So everyone was kind of thinking it was almost like the student was becoming the master. It was a really exciting story coming from that race because, you know, Lorena Weebs has been literally unbeatable for the last couple of years so it just sets up the season so nicely for a really great rivalry between the two of them and then obviously in the G- when it comes to the GC it was sort of all decided on Jebel Hafeet which was the only climb of the race basically and Trek Segafredo really dominated that stage Elisa Longa Borghini was helped up the climb by Gaia Rolini who's a new signing for that team a young Italian rider who performed really well in the Giro last year and she was climbing phenomenally well and I think she'll be one to watch at the Tour de France and could even maybe challenge riders like Van Vluten it'll be really interesting to see how she does against that sort of field so it was a race that really set up some interesting narratives for the rest of the season it was a really good one. What was your perspective on the Weebs cool battle because was it a case of 
it being an early season race and Vibas maybe having one eye on bigger targets in the future? Or was there a sense that this was a, a straight head-to-head and actually maybe Vibas isn't going to have things all her own way this year? I think it's going to be interesting because obviously Charlotte Cool hasn't moved teams. So she's still with DSM like she was last year. Whereas Lorena Weaves is on a completely new team, new equipment, new bike, new setup. So maybe she's just taking a little longer to get used to that, following different wheels. But looking at the power and the speed of Charlotte Cool when she went, there was no mistaking that she was as fast or well faster on the day she beat her than Lorena Weaves. And I think it's also going to help massively for Charlotte Cool to have that confidence that she's beaten her twice. She's done it in two head-to-head sprints. Why can't she do it during the classics or in bigger races? So yeah, we'll have to wait and see. It's definitely going to be an interesting battle to watch unfold. And so much of it depends on the lead outs as well. So yeah, it's just going to see who's kind of got getting it right and is the most well-drilled. Maybe when Lorena Weaves has more time to get used to SD work, she'll dominate again. We'll just have to see. And with the GC battle, obviously, it was a Trek Segafredo dominated affair. What did we learn for the future from that mountain stage? I guess I think we learned that someone like Longa Borghini, I suppose, when she's got the a domestique like Guy Rellini in front of her, even though Longa Borghini's a rider who we saw her won Roubaix last year, like she's not necessarily someone you think of as a pure climber, but maybe when she's got a wheel to follow and she's got that perfect domestique for the mountain, she is someone who can contest those stages, especially if it's ridden a bit more cagily and the better climbers aren't the ones who kind of open it up early. But yeah, I just think Guy Rolini is going to be such an interesting rider to watch. And I hope that she gets her own chances as well with track, because there was a bit of talk about if Longa Borghini would gift her the stage win after all the work she'd done. You know, she's a young rider. She doesn't have many results compared to someone like Longa Borghini. But Longa Borghini did, in fact, take the win. And she there was a bit of discourse around if that was the right decision and whether she should have given it to her younger teammate who'd done all of the work. So we'll see. We'll see if Trek give her the opportunities that to go for her own results. I hope they do, because like I said, I'd really like to see her go head-to-head with Cecily Utrebludwig, Annemiek van Vluten, Demi Vollering, those big names, and see how she can compare to them in the mountains of like the Tour de France and the Giro. And there will be terrain in the bigger stage races for her to express her talent, won't there? Yeah, definitely, exactly. I mean, the Tour de France fan this year has got some really long mountain stages, and she'll be so well-suited to them. And I think everyone's hoping for another rider to be in contention for the GC because last year, I mean, Van Vluten was so dominating, it did get maybe slightly predictable. So, yeah, it's great to see someone else up there with that sort of climbing talent. Great. So your eye was caught by important things like racing. My eye was caught by the Trinity Racing Kit, which was put out this, which was publicised this week. Have you seen it and did you like it? I have seen it. It was it was hard to miss. I think it was all over my Twitter and Instagram, which I guess is what they were going for. So they're probably quite pleased with that sort of response. I liked it. I thought it's cool. It's modern. It's nice to see a team doing something a bit different, a bit more contemporary than other jerseys. Kit designs are really important and it's about how they make the riders feel and the image they portray of the team and also for the sponsors. And if everyone's talking about it, I mean, I kind of think you've done something right. Yeah. I, I agree. I, th- I thought it looked amazing. I love that. It just looks so innovative and fresh and kind of op-arty. And I don't know how it'll look in, in a peloton from a distance, but I thought it was great. So from team kits to the things that we put inside them, which namely our bodies, the theme of the new edition of Ruler, number 117, is the body. So one of the things I find really compelling about road racing is that it allows for 
so many different body sizes and shapes. There's a stat I've talked about in my editorial in the magazine, which is from David Epstein's book, The Sports Gene, which was published in 2013. And the numbers might be a bit wrong now because it's, it's now 10 years on. But um, there was a stat back then that of American men aged 20 to 40 who stand seven feet tall, 17% of them were in the NBA. And that's, you know, it's a measure on one hand of how few people are actually that tall. It's a vanishingly small number of people. But on the other hand, it's how efficiently basketball selects for height. And obviously not all basketball pros are seven feet tall, but most basketball players do lean towards the, the very tall. There are other sports that select for body type as well. Distance runners and marathon runners tend to be very slight. Swimmers, a bit more complicated, but they tend to have big hands, big feet and long arms relative to their height. Cycling road racing, on the other hand, is differently because obviously leanness is very important and it's actually something, Rachel, you've written about in the past. The tension between staying lean and having a healthy relationship with food and eating and weight is, you know, it's it's a big issue. But with cyclists, I, I look back and found in, I think, one of the early Julie d'Italia of the early 21st century, both Magnus Backstead, who was six foot four and 94 kilos, apologies for mixing imperial and metric measures, um, and Jose Rujano, who's a Venezuelan cyclist, um, he was five foot three and 48 kilograms, and both riders were in the same race. And it's, I just find that I just don't think you get many other sports where you have that variety of body shapes. It's one of the things that really attracts me about road racing. We've got some fascinating features on the theme of the body in the magazine. Got an interview and shoot with Julian Alaphilippe, who's one of the most physical riders in the World Tour. And I talked about that a bit with James in the last edition of the podcast. We've also got interviews with Theo Gagenhart and Lizzie Banks and the cultural critic and cycling journalist Kate Wagner wrote us a very considered feature about cycling's relationship with pain and suffering. But first, Rachel, also in this magazine, you went to Singapore for the Tour de France Prudential Singapore Criterium. How was it? It was good. It was a unique experience. Like, I've never been to sort of that part of the world at all, so it was all quite new to me. But I was kind of taken aback by the whole place. I mean, in Singapore, it's so vibrant and so otherworldly. It almost feels like you're kind of stepping into the future or something. It's just a country with such an incredible mix of people, so much cultural diversity. There's like a kind of fusion of all these different cultures and experiences in, in one city. I think I, I, maybe I expected something else. I thought it was just a collection of grey high-rise buildings. I didn't expect all of this amazing culture that I discovered when I was there. But kind of the more I looked, the more I found. And um, I was just sort of wished I was there for longer, really, because there was so much to explore. It's such a small country, but I almost felt like I didn't even get to see as much as I wanted to. And it was a great experience, definitely. And of course, the climate's very different over there. I remember from my time of living in Japan, like the, the humidity and heat you get, is, it's just not something that growing up in Britain can ever prepare you for. And even go on holiday to hot places in Europe. I found it was a totally different experience. It really is a part of the whole experience, isn't it? Definitely. I think I got there and I was got off the plane and I was almost like 
felt like I couldn't breathe, to be honest, in, in the humidity and that heat. It really did take like some getting used to. And the taxi driver who brought me from the airport to where we were staying said to me, oh, yeah, we all go and like kind of stand in the shopping malls where there's aircon just to get away from the heat. And at the time I was like, oh, you know, I'll be fine walking along the street. I won't need to do that. And as soon as I was walking around, I was like, found myself searching for every air conditioned space I could. Um, we were like sitting watching the actual race under umbrellas just to shield from the heat of the sun. It was it was like a heat I've never experienced before. I guess the smells and sights and sounds are also different as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were spent a couple of hours in Chinatown and Little India and there's all the food markets and so many different cultures, so many different people. It's kind of almost overwhelming for the senses at first. It's also incredible and it's like a place I've never seen anything like that before. I mean, it was really cool. And who was there and why? So it was kind of a collection of people who have a history of doing really well in the Tour de France or being Tour de France stars. It wasn't all people who were necessarily really good in the Tour de France last year. It was like Mark Cavendish was there, for example, obviously because of his history in the race. Then we, Jonas Vingegaard was there. Valverde, Nibali, they were kind of some of the main stars there. Chris Froome as well. They were all there to do the uh, Prudential Singapore Criterion, which is one of the a series of races they do after the Tour de France each year. I guess you would call them like exhibition races more than actual races, just to kind of bring, I guess, the magic of the Tour to places who don't really normally see it, who would never normally get to maybe see these cyclists racing on their home roads, bring a bit of awareness of cycling to the area, and I guess long-term hope that more people who live there get on bikes and things like that. And the result was a very close run, but maybe unusual sprint, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't expect Vingegaard, Froome or Nibali to out-sprint Mark Cavendish or Jasper Philipson, who are also in the race, in a flat uh, criterium. So, yeah, I mean, it was what the fans wanted. That was all that mattered. Like, everyone was going crazy in the stands, wanting the guy in the yellow jersey to win. It got everyone really excited. I mean, the result was really secondary to what the bigger, wider aim of the whole event was when it wasn't just the pro race that was on either they had like Brompton races they had women's races they had amateur races that was kind of secondary and it was more I guess just making a whole weekend of cycling in the country and did you get an impression that the locals reacted well to the event yeah, I mean, they had one of the days they had like a vintage bike race and people, I mean, the amount of people there with with the vintage bikes was really, I was quite surprised. I didn't really know that there was a culture of that there. Also, the amount of people with Bromptons as well, like folding bikes, that was really well populated. I think there was a bit of a boom in Singapore during the lockdown where people did invest in quite expensive bikes and there was some quite impressive kit on show actually uh, among the amateur riders yeah like the stands were full there was people in the like expo area where all the time looking at new products and the brands that were exhibiting I think the people responded really well and obviously it's Singapore isn't a country we see that widely represented in the world tour so for young kids growing up and and seeing that those sort of professional riders, I, I hope it would have been quite inspiring for them and maybe made them think that it might be possible because there was also some riders from the Singapore national team in the same race. And I imagine it was yeah quite an inspiring experience for young kids like watching it. And lastly on that, you observed some of the pros having a go on the trishore bikes that, that people used to get around in Singapore and some were better than others apparently. Yeah it was so funny watching them really because I, I didn't expect a lot from it I mean they had this sort of media activity which was a, and I was thought like what is this actually going to be like but 
like it was quite revealing like you have Mark Cavendish jumping on the trishore and he was sort of like straight away trying to have a joke with the others playing like argy-bargy as if they're in a bunch sprint whereas Vingigo was really wobbly and a bit nervous and he wasn't enjoying it so much and then the funniest thing was just watching the professional trishore riders who were trying to teach them how to sort of maneuver the vehicles they were just like couldn't stop laughing at how nervous and wobbly the winner of the Tour de France was on this like three-wheeled vehicle so it, it was really funny experience actually probably a good idea for him to stick to two wheels <laughs> in in the future so elsewhere elsewhere in the magazine uh, i interviewed lizzie banks at ruler live at the end of last year and what about you rachel but i'd found lizzie banks to be a really interesting character and cyclist and i just find her to be a force of nature really she's just kind of so enthusiastic for for the sport and she does a lot of media activity she helps out with the cycling podcast and she's, she's got a very good public profile. I've always had a lot of time for a rider as well. I, I remember her kind of breakthrough wins at the Women's Giro a couple of years ago. And I remember when she was contesting the finish of the Grand Prix de Plouet with Lizzie Dignan a couple of years ago. It might have been 2020 in the, maybe the lockdown Plouet, one of the first races back. And I was rooting for her in the finish and also with her being away, coming to a sprint with Lizzie Dignan, I also thought she's probably not going to win there. But she it just made a real impression of how she grabs races. Have you followed her career very closely? Yeah, I remember that race in Plouet as well. I'm always someone who roots for the sort of underdog when it's a race like that. So I was willing her on in the sprint as well. But I remember her crossing the line and just grinning. And it was like, she was just over, like in the interviews afterwards, she was just saying like how she was so happy to be in a break with Lizzie Dignan. Because Lizzie Banks is obviously quite a latecomer to the sport. And she'd like watched Lizzie Dignan racing years leading up to that and then to be in a breakaway with her I think she was just really happy with that but she, she is a rider with so much potential and I'm hoping she gets back to her best like you say she's a really exciting rider yeah and she's had a really challenging couple of seasons and you know really rotten luck really she had a bad concussion like a serious concussion in which took out most of 2021 for her and then COVID induced pericarditis in 2022 which again wipes out a whole season. So here's Lizzie Banks on the challenging couple of years that she's had. I've actually just started riding again. So uh, just over a month ago, at the end of September, I felt like I was ready to start again. I was cautiously kind of stepping back into it. I did my first one hour ride. The day after that, some family were visiting me and one of my family members tested positive for COVID. Four days later, I got COVID again. So I had to take some time off again in September. in September, this October. So the day after I started training again, I got COVID again. Two weeks later, I visited the cardiologist to have a checkup. And five days later, I picked up bronchitis from the cardiologist. <sighs> so these are, these are factors completely out of my control. I mean, I did everything right. I went off the bike when I had COVID. I didn't train. I came back very slowly. I did everything right. But... It's something that you can't control. There are millions and millions of people living with long COVID, unable to get a diagnosis, unable to get treatment. And really, I consider myself bloody lucky that I have the resources to be able to do that. And that actually I've recovered for all intents and purposes from it. You know, if I were doing a normal job, I would have been able to do that for a number of months now. Unfortunately, I, not unfortunately, but you know, I, I don't have a normal job. And of course, you know, I've been able to, to work in other aspects of the sport over the last few months, which has 
has been really nice to do to have an outlet but you know there's nothing in my history that could have predicted this and I know what it looks like from the outside I know what people say like I get it people you know see riders that haven't raced for two years or have one thing after another and they just think they just write off that rider and I'm not ready to be written off yet I know that I'm still the same person the concussion and the pericarditis didn't change the physiology of my my legs or my anatomy or the fact that I can put out the power and the fact that I have incredible mental toughness if anything is enhanced that after the concussion when I, I finished that I felt like well I've if I've got through this there is literally nothing that I can't get through I was also quite interested to hear what Lizzie Banks had to say on the subject of training. I'm always fascinated to hear whether riders are very scientific in their training or a bit more artistic. And Lizzie Banks definitely leans more towards the creative side on training. I'm very free form. I'm not good at sticking to a plan. I'm not good at rigidity. I think because I've been in control of my own life since I was like six <laughs> and been able to do whatever I wanted. I am like more than happy to listen and take advice, but what works for me is having freedom and having flexibility. And I don't need to say, I'm going to do this for 10 minutes and this for four minutes and this for two minutes. You know, I will go out and for my rides, if I need to do like four minute efforts, I will smash it up hills that are roughly four minutes because in the race, the effort isn't going to be exactly four minutes. So yeah, so smash it up the hill that is the length of, is roughly that length and it might be 320 or it might be 430 or whatever. But for me, I enjoy that. I enjoy exploring and you know, so much of it as well is just about feeding back to how you actually feel. But we haven't just talked about professional cycling bodies in Rouleau 117. We enjoy and admire what elite athletes do, but it's important to not apply the same expectations to the rest of us. The interview which I think I personally learned the most from in this magazine was with Bo Markson, who posts on Instagram with the handle at dadbod underscore cyclist. Bo suffers from body dysmorphia, which has manifested itself in morbid obesity, anorexia and bulimia and he is working to make cycling a space that is more accepting of different body shapes. In the past, cycling has sometimes seen itself as an activity for a certain kind of person and a certain kind of body shape. In fact, as Bo says in the most important quote in the magazine, a cyclist is somebody who turns their pedals. He told me about his experience of having discovered cycling and trying to find clothes to wear while doing so. You know, I remember the first time I went to the cycle shop to buy some Lycra. And I remember so vividly, I'm not gonna say the name of the shop, I'm not gonna say the name of the brand, but I went into a shop, I tried on a, a well-known brand. I reached for, I think I reached for a large or an XL at the time, because I was like, oh yeah, this, you know, I'll, I'll go for the, the bigger end of it. And I literally couldn't pull on the jersey. And this brand happened to have a triple X and, and even that was close. So I was like, in that moment, I was like, oh, I actually can't be a cyclist. And, and I have to say, looking back at that moment, I was, as I say, I was kind of smaller than I am now. And obviously like the way Lycra feels and how it fits, you don't really understand the first time you put it on, how it actually is supposed to fit. So going from someone who, even when I was anorexic and hospitalized and so you know i never wore anything that wasn't loose or baggy because i've always been trying to hide my body so there was that element of it but it was very uncomfortable it was very off-putting 
I went online, I looked around at a bunch of different brands and, you know, every single person that I saw looked nothing like me. And, and in that moment, I just was like, oh, maybe I can't actually do this. And so I said, screw it. I ordered a bunch of different brands and their top sizes and I found one and I was like, oh, okay, I'll do it. I'll try it, you know? But <laughs> the point of that is, I'm sure there are a lot of people who in that moment walked out of the shop and never came back. Markson was also painfully honest about the challenges he has faced in his life. So for me, like anorexia, bulimia, compulsive exercise, which is a form of bulimia, compulsive overeating, you know, it's an interesting thing because my eating disorder, I have eating disorders kind of across the board. And I think because my stuff is not just eating disorders, I'm also an addict, which I believe is a disease. I'm hardwired to do the things in the moment that I least need. So if I'm tired, I sit on the sofa and hold my eyes open like a kid and stay awake. If I'm lonely, I stay to myself. This is not necessarily what I do today, but this is my default hardwiring. If I'm feeling really fat and uncomfortable with myself, I eat. I'm designed to destroy myself. You know, I have a brain that's trying to kill me and a body that's trying to survive constantly. And so most of the time, Less so today because I'm years in recovery, but even still today, like my impulsive first best thinking is generally the wrong choice. And so because I have some recovery, what it's given me, which is kind of the gift of being in recovery and, and what recovery from addiction really is, is there's just some space between thought and action, whereas in the past there wasn't. In our follow-ups, Bo was keen to stress that though he has been to both extremes of compulsive overeating and compulsively undereating and exercising, the underlying feelings were the same, and working through that has been key to coming to terms with the challenges he has faced. Support and information about body dysmorphia can be found at the Body Dysmorphic Disorder Foundation website, bddfoundation.org. And if you are experiencing mental health issues or are in crisis, the Samaritans are at www.samaritans.org or call free on 116-123. Rachel, thank you for your presence on Ruler Conversations. We're going to go for a short break now and after a bit more publicity for Ruler 117, Dan Cavallari will be talking 3D printed saddles with the marketing and product managers of Salitalia. Thank you, Rachel. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Ruler. Rouleau is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. We feature the work of the best writers in cycling, along with the very best photography, elegantly laid out and printed on high-quality paper. Our deep dives into road racing, gravel, adventure cycling and life on two wheels are immersive, independent, agenda-setting and thought-provoking. We aim to educate, entertain, inform and inspire. Our latest magazine, out now, is Rouleau 117, the body issue. One of the most fascinating things about road racing is that it is accessible to so many different body shapes. Basketball players are tall, distance runners are slight. But cyclists can be tall, short, stocky, skinny and everything in between. And outside the sport, anybody can cycle. To paraphrase René Descartes, 
I cycle, therefore I am a cyclist. Ruler 117 features an exclusive interview with Julien Alaphilippe, the double world champion. Alaphilippe is one of the most physical cyclists in the world tour. His riding style is expressive and hides nothing. We knew we had to have him in the magazine. Also featured in Ruler 117, in-depth interviews with Theo Gagan-Hart, Lizzie Banks and Matthias Skelmius. Cultural critic and cycling journalist Kate Wagner reflects on the sport's relationship with pain and suffering. And Ruler Italia editor Emilio Previtali reflects on what cycling has in common with the Japanese art of kintsugi. There's also a fascinating interview with Instagram content creator Bo Markson, whose honesty and battle with body dysmorphia is an inspiring tale. Bo posts on Instagram with the handle at dadbod underscore cyclist. Rulo 117 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to rulo.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rouleur Magazine Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, and I am joining you once again from Colorado here in the United States where it is snowy and cold and it is not optimal riding conditions. And to to tide myself over uh, during the winter months, I geek out over gear, uh, as you may have suspected, given that I host a gear and tech podcast. Uh, among other jobs that I do, I write about tech, I, I research tech, I ride gear all the time. And one of the things that I am noticing this particular winter, as I spin away the miles on the trainer, is how important to me, as I've grown as a cyclist, that touch points have become, uh, and particularly saddles. And saddles have undergone just monumental changes in just the last five to 10 years. They've gotten shorter, they've gotten wider, they've gotten channels cut out of them, and foams are different. It's been a constant evolution of perhaps the most important touch point on your entire bike. And within recent years, we've now seen 3D printed saddles hit the market, and I happen to ride one, uh, and so, and I'm a big proponent but it's sort of a, a new thing for a lot of consumers who, even though the technology has been around for a while and we've started to see 3D printed products on the market for a few years. And one of the brands that has pioneered saddles for a very, very long time is Selle Italia. And they, uh, the company now has their own 3D printed saddle, which one of them I'm looking at right now on the website is the SLR Boost 3D Kit Carbonio Superflow. That's a mouthful, and we're going to unpack that later. <laughs> but I wanted to find out why 3D printing is the way of the future for saddles, what makes it special, and what makes Celia Italia's new 3D printed saddle different, better than the rest that's already on the market. So on the phone today, uh, joining me from Oslo, Italy, is Enrico Grando, marketing manager for Celia Italia, and Enrico Andreola, product manager. We have two Enricos. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure for us being here. So, Enrico Grando, you are the marketing manager, and Enrico Andreola, you're the product manager, and, and you both have had quite a bit to do and to an involvement in the development of 3D printing saddles. Let's start, though. Let's take a, a step back. Celia Italia is a name a lot of cyclists already know. One of you, can you give a brief summary of Celia Italia's history? And, and its track record of designing saddles in general and why people would want to pay attention to what you're doing. 
Sure, like Enrico, the marketing guy here speaking. <laughs> well, I, I'm more into the history of the brand, so I, I let yes. all the technical details to my colleague, yeah, Enrico. Sure. We've been around uh, for a long time now. Like we, we started making cells as Sella Italia, well, more precisely as Sella Italia, which is like the singular version of the saddle work. In Italian, of course, uh, in 1897, so quite a long time ago. 125 years ago, if uh, my math study is <laughs> good enough. Fresh enough. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's correct. So um, we started as a company. Well, it was, of course, a different company. It was a company who used to make leather commuting urban saddles for like a completely different market, as you can imagine. It was a very small company based nearby Milan, in Milan area. Then in the, well, I skipped that part of the story because I don't want to focus so so, so much on that one, but it's better to focus on the second part of the Sally Italia brand. Because like the Bigolin family, in particular Giuseppe Bigolin, the current owner, current president of the Sally Italia company, uh, he acquired Sella Italia and uh, brought it to this area. It was an area like the Veneto region was an area where like important bike brands and component brands especially started to, to, to bring here the old bike industry. Think about Campagnolo. Like we are like 30 kilometers away from the Campagnolo headquarters. Lots of frame builders uh, uh, back in the days like uh, Atala, Potecchia, those kind of historical frame builders were, brought the bike industry in uh, this area. Just for you to know, we are very, like all the accessories and components uh, and also apparel uh, brands are the most important ones uh, are, I think, in 30, 40 kilometers area from where we are. So this is like a happy place where to cycle. <laughs> so long story short, in the 70s, he brought the company from Milan. So he acquired this Sella Italia and he brought it from Milan to this area, to Rossano Veneto, his hometown, just very close to where we are now today. And uh, he started to change it. He started to change it and to um, he started to make performance uh, road saddles. Okay, bringing from the very beginning of the history a lot of innovation into the, 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 the saddle making, the saddle manufacturing. There were at that time very few brands making saddles, of course. Uh, Sales San Marco was the leader back, back in the days at that time. Now Sales San Marco is part of our company, is part of the Sale Italia company. And it was based always in Rossano Vento, in the same small village, <laughs> just for you to know. That was fun, of course. So we changed it and we, we started to make performance saddles. We, in 1980, precisely, we made the first uh, performance saddles made, uh, developed together with a pro athlete that was uh, Bernard Inol. Mm-hmm. And in 1990, we were the first one uh, uh, making the frame visible, uh, changing the anatomical shape of the saddle for, for it to be more performance, of course. So a lot of innovation were brought to the saddle manufacturing process uh, from Sal Italia. Then we have a story. We are very present in the old performance segment of the saddle manufacturing, saddle, uh, saddle making, touching all the types of performance cycling, from road to mountain biking to gravel, of course, uh, and we're also present in the commuting market. Uh, so, yes, where we perform the best, uh, in my personal opinion, is the high-level performance uh, market. And uh, this brings us to the 
new SLR 3D printed servo, which is like maybe the, the, the best in class yes. that we have right now, like in this moment. Eric is already working on, I don't know how many new projects. Uh, that's, just yeah. to sum it all up, to make the, the, the long story short, this is the, the core. We're going to talk pretty extensively about all the details that Enrico had to go through before this saddle even hit the market, right? But what the takeaway here is that Sully Italia has quite an extensive history of, of saddle design in Italy and, and beyond. In the high-end market for saddles and the race market, uh, Sully Italia has been a presence for a very long time as well. It's also worth mentioning that uh, Asolo, Italy is just, like you said, a playground. I've been there to ride bikes and, and it is just a wonderful, wonderful place to ride bikes. So I think the culture of cycling there is is deep and that certainly lends credence to, to the development of saddles in that area. Enrico Andreola, let's jump in a little bit about generally 3D printing. I think at this point, our, our audience probably has a general understanding of 3D printing, which is an additive process uh, where you're actually building up structures rather than something like CNC in metal where you're removing material. And that allows you to create pretty complex structures. Why has it taken so long for 3D printing to take hold in general in the bike industry, but more specifically in saddle design? Well, uh, the introduction of the additive manufacturing that is the right naming of the technology is not so new, but uh, until a few years ago, it was only inside the prototyping phase of the development of a product. And mainly because it was not industrial, let me say. So only a few years ago, the machines or the, the components of the technology has been uh, mature enough to, to allow us to build something in industrial scale, so in large scale. Few years ago, we can print out a, a topper of a saddle, uh, even with a very good uh, and soft material, but uh, it was impossible to develop an industrial scale manufacturing, let me say. And only in few years, few years ago, uh, there was the technology to do the, this job. Our competitor uh, introduced and we realized that it, it is a, a good method. It is a consistent and robust method. And uh, it is quite new, but uh, we are now in the, in the field. And uh, I suppose that we, are, we have done uh, our own work uh, very well. Mm -hmm. And it's worth noting that uh, until 3D printing came along, construction of a saddle was much different. The process was different. So this required new machinery. It required new expertise. It required new materials. This is essentially an entire retooling of a section of your factory, correct? Correct. We changed our mind, even the, the thinking of a new product, a new saddle, because the method that we applied is totally different from the method that normally you use for, for developing a saddle. And so it is a quite a big step and big change in our in our method, in our thinking. It's also worth noting that while Sally Italia has a 3D printed saddle, you weren't the first to market with one and they've been around for a few years now. You know, knowing that and knowing as a saddle manufacturer that you had the capabilities to do this, what did you go into this project with in terms of design goals? What is Celia Italia doing differently with its 3D printed saddles that we haven't seen from other brands already? I go with this, the marketing guy. Okay. 
Marketing guy, all right. <laughs> yes, of course, like you say, we are not the first one in the market, in the saddle manufacturing, in the saddle uh, business, uh, making uh, 3D printed saddle physics uh, and specialized. They they did it like in 2018, if I remember yes, correctly, correct. more or less yes. around 2018, uh, with the same technology, the carbon, the carbon DLS technology. Because, of course, like the technology has started to be around uh, for like a a few years ago, but we decided to go with that technology because we think that Recon is the best in plus technology right. for making 3D printed cells. Industrially. So we're not the first one, like I was saying, and we decided to take our time and to take advantage of not being in a rush on how to launch the 3D printed saddle. And we decided to take our time to study the technology a lot uh, and to of course, uh, exploit somehow this delay of ours uh, using the technology, the carbon technology at its best. So we chose the right partners. Uh, we, the old uh, 3D printed saddle of Salitalia is made in Italy uh, with the help, of course, uh, of uh, the, an Italian supplier who manages the 3D printing technology in the jewelry marketing market, especially. It's a prototype, it's a partner of ours in Piedmont area of Italy. So we developed the saddle together with them. They helped us printing, of course, the, the cover of the saddle. We managed to adapt uh, the carbon technology to the saddle and not vice versa, because this was a key point uh, during the whole uh, development process of ours. We took the best in class uh, for Salitalia, the SLR, and for Sale San Marco, the Shorty 2.0 saddle. So we took the two best in class in our collection and we applied, applied uh, the best technology in the market now to the saddle without changing the saddles. Okay, so if you are riding the SLR 3D, it's in terms of shape, uh, it's like riding uh, the traditional, let's say, uh, SLR uh, boost uh, carbonium. Okay, so this was uh, also tricky Correct. because the SLR... Big trouble. SLR is not an easy saddle to make at all. At all. <laughs> it has a strong anatomical shape. Uh, it's uh -huh. the queen of our saddle. So everybody loves it. Uh, whoever rides with the SLR will not change the saddle anymore. Somehow this is the lucky of, of ours, of course. And uh, we decided to make our life uh, difficult. difficult. <laughs> <laughs> to take the most difficult saddle for using this technology how we managed it and yes this is pretty much how we took advantage of this somehow delay that we had we are proud yeah, yeah. Of, the, of the results the feedbacks that we are having mm -hmm. are extremely positive so i think that we especially enrico i use like the plural and my studies of course but like yeah. enrico and his team they did a great job i'm just the one yeah communicating thanks a lot <laughs> right <laughs> so, Enrico Andreola, this is probably a question for you. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about the structure of the saddle, the saddle top, where you know you are able to create different cushioning zones with different densities or different properties to support the rider. What types of support do riders need at different points in the saddle? It is a big question. Basically, uh, you need a softer support where you have these soft tissues 
and you need more support, so more stiffness where you are the seat bones, the ischiatic bones. It is a, an ergonomic general concept that you have to follow developing a new cycle. And it is a great, the great opportunity that the, the 3D printing offer to you is that you can really adapt the stiffness of the saddle where you need it. So it is a big advantage. And there is a common advantage uh, that also our competitor um, use. And this is something that, that is the real reason why to start working with the 3D printing technology. What we choose, as we say that we are not the first one, but we wanted to do better than our competitors. So we wanted to do something different. First of all, we want to keep the shape as the well-known shape of the SLR, and it is already a tricky point. And uh, doing this, we realized that we must do something different, uh, developing the functioning of the cell in a different way from our competitor, because our thicknesses of, of toppers are different, are really thin. And we realized that our saddle must to work in a different way. So we develop our own pattern also in the, in the external layer. At the first view, you can recognize that it is an SLR. It is a 3D printed SLR, and this is something totally different from other 3D printed study in the market. So also the looking is different, but it is the more important and the, the more important thing that is different, it is inside the center and you have to look really near to the center to, to recognize that there is a, a lattice structure inside that is working in a totally different way that gives you the softness where it is needed and the stiffness where it is needed because we work with the dimensions that the, the diameter of the pillars inside the lattice structures that working together or every pillar work together with the, the near one and giving the correct stiffness where it is needed. And doing this, it is the, the stiffness of the saddle changes with continuity. So it is not a net change in the softness of the saddle, but uh, it is changing really with continuity and uh, giving the correct uh, stiffness where it is needed. So it is the focus on the focus point of the entire work. Mm -hmm. And just out of curiosity, were you able to do that sort of thing with the foams that you were using before the 3D printing came along? It is quite impossible. When you, you develop a normal, let me say, saddle, you use a foam, you use it correctly, and the foam can vary considering the thickness of the foam, but the density, let me say, it is an improper word, but the density of the, of the foam, it is always the same along the, the saddle. Or it varies, but with a discontinuity. It is a more example in the market that even in our range that gives different zones in different areas, but there is a discontinuity to from a density to another. And it is something that you can feel. It is impossible to manage and to, and to vary with a, a certain continuity, the softness of a foam in, with a traditional method or with a traditional foam, with a polyurethane, let me say. It is something that only with the 3D printing, only with the additive manufacturing, you can perform. Yeah. What is the material that you use for the 3D printed part of the saddle? Is it a plastic or what, what exactly is it? 
It is a particular liquid polymer that is offered by the supplier that is carbon U.S. company based in California. And it is an EPU. It is a liquid polymer that when is solidified, it is really similar to the characteristics of a PU, of a normal PU, of polyurethane, but is quite totally the, 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 the production method to reach this uh, material is totally different from the polyurethane. So it is something look like, uh, act like a polyurethane, but is a, a special liquid polymer that uh, it, it has been developed by the, the supplier. Gotcha. I've heard <laughs> other companies claim other benefits to the 3D printed lattice structure like, you know, airflow. And I'm thinking to myself, that thing is buried underneath me. How could airflow through that at all? Is there something to that? Are there other benefits to the lattice structure or is it mostly just the cushioning aspects of it that, that matter to you? It is an uh, unexpected advantage because uh, we develop, I'm, I have to be honest, we develop um, thinking about the offering the, the correct softness where it is needed. But we discovered that, uh, especially with hot uh, temperatures, the, the lattice structures, it is fresh, if, uh, <laughs> comparing with a normal leather or normal cover of, an, of a normal saddle. So it's something that we discovered, mm -hmm. and it is really appreciated, especially for the pro riders that ride on a saddle for many, many hours. Okay. So there is something to it. That's, that's interesting. I would have thought that that was kind of nonsense. Just, you know, knowing where the saddle is positioned, you know, <laughs> it's a collateral, collateral advantage, let me say. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. So we've talked a little bit about the structure of the top, but I mean, how does that play with the carbon shell? I mean, did you have to redesign anything there to support the upper part of the saddle differently? I go with this, uh, no, and this is one of the point of strengths in the development of our saddles. So apart from the cover, the other components of the saddles are exactly the same already in, in, in the range uh, uh, SLR saddle and same for the short 2.0 saddle San Marco. So we didn't change the shell of the saddle, we didn't change uh, the frame, we didn't change any part of it. So we maintain that. Like I was saying, it was maybe one of the toughest parts to manage. So we, we, we kept it. The Enricos are communicating by, via secret written messages here. Hold on, wait. Is there something you'd like to add? <laughs> no, I mean, like, this is, uh, <laughs> like I was saying, the main advantage of ours and what maybe one of the most important differentiation points from the other startups uh -huh. in the market. Uh, gotcha. This was also possible thanks to the time that we had to, to, to mm -hmm. develop the saddle. So it was very yeah. time consuming. These aspects are very tricky, very, very hard to manage. But we wanted to, to apply it to take the best in technology, to take it and to apply it to the best saddle and to bring our best saddle to another level. And then, of course, uh, we tested it, tested it, and tested it. We are lucky enough to, to be riders ourselves uh, as well, uh, but more than the two of us, we have a lot of pro riders, pro riders and, uh, and more uh, expert riders than, than me, at least, uh, of course, uh, helping us with the 
uh, feedbacks and develop for the development of the saddle. So to sum it all up, we take the best technology, apply that to the best saddle, then we go through a test, 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 test phase, a very long one also. Right. It is a big difference that of our work to the our competitor because we really didn't change nothing of the shape of the ergonomics of the SLR and of the short fit. And the trickier, maybe the hardest point of the developing of these two shadows, mainly of, uh, of the SLR, that we adapt really the technology to our needs, to our shape, and at the difference of our saddles in the market that are more, they adapted the shape to the technology because the a tricky point is to print out something that is flat and uh, bond it uh, on something that is, isn't flat at all. So it is something that is really tricky. Gotcha. So that was the secret message. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was trying to be gentle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you played it off well. Now, it is a complicated technology. It's a complex design. It has an equally complex name, uh, the saddle <laughs> itself. So this is, the one I'm looking at is the SLR Boost 3D Kit Carbonio Superflow. Let's do a little pop quiz. <laughs> SLR, what does that mean? Okay, we realized that we have to work on naming. I mean, uh, this is yes. a fun story. <laughs> because, uh, well, I'll explain all the parts of the name. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I promise that uh, we are working on uh, making a naming convention easier. But trust me, right. once you are into the old uh, Sal yeah. Italia world, uh, they all make sense. So you understand the lexicon the, the, yeah. the, the old taxonomy of the of the, yes. of the naming of the saddle it's yeah. a good and it makes perfect sense slr is okay. the name of the saddle the neutral one we have three main shapes we have the flat saddle flight saddle we have the waved one the novice and we have the in-between one the neutron shape the more anatomical one which is the slr gotcha. the seller the best in glass saddle yes. the one we are most proud of of course so okay. that is the name of the saddle okay Okay. Booster stands yes. for short because we have the long version, the traditional version of saddles, but mm, like we've been making for quite a few years now, short saddle, the old, the old industry, the old market, the old saddle, all the other right. manufacturers tend to have shorter saddle. Youth. This is for so many reasons that I don't want to go into this now. Sure. That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can have a podcast about short saddles. <laughs> yes. So that is Booster. Uh, Superflow, it identifies the cutout. We used to have the flow cutout, and now we have the Superflow cutout, which is like the bigger cutout. Improved version. Mm -hmm. Yes, an improved version of the cutout for the saddle. And what else? The kit carbonio identifies the frame. Because like, for example... The carbon rail. Yeah, the carbon mm -hmm. rail. Sorry, sorry. I apologize for this. The kit carbonio <laughs> identifies the rails. Uh, the carbon okay. base of the saddles because the 3D, the SLR Boost uh, Superflow 3D is available both with kit carbonio race, with carbon race, and with TI 316 race. Okay. I then see. Okay. for naming it 3D, we had, I don't know how many meetings, uh, Rico. <laughs> a lot. Two of us, together with the sales department, together with the direction. It is a fun story. <laughs> and so we had, yeah. like, we started to think about the ancient gods, uh, to planets, uh, to, we, we worked on the pattern of the saddle with geometrical shapes, uh, and we ended up calling it 
3D. As simple as that. 3D. <laughs> this is because, like you were saying, our names are pretty much difficult. And then we realized yeah. that even though we call it a name with a specific name, people cool. at the end they call it as they want. They yeah, right, right. So three different stuff. They call it SLR, and it's it. Yeah. So if, yeah. Yeah. You know, if we have called it SLR, then Cavalier Edition, they call it SLR 3D, as long as it's 3D printed. So. As we say, it is improper because it's not 3D printing, it's an improper name, but additive manufacturing will be quite tricky. So 3D is more immediate. <laughs> and also because we called it 3D. Yes, correct. Back in those days. Mm-hmm. So it was like developing, right. developing it. Back in the days when we talked about the new development phase, we, we talked the 3D side so it is 3D. Yeah, yeah right, thank right. you for bringing this, uh, this topic, because it's something <laughs> we are working on. We realize that we can, we can improve on the naming convention. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's got such a musical quality to it, the name itself, it's, and it tells a story. It's quite beautiful. <laughs> it's, you know, it's funny to see each word mean something, and I think that's yes, what, what's very cool. Think about us when we have to write something, when we have to make presentations, you know, it's a nightmare yeah. for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just take a very deep breath yes. before you say the whole word. The SLR is very short. And then yes, yes, we perfect. Add a lot. We add a lot of, yes. of other names. And, oh, yes. It all makes sense. It's like the recipe spelled out. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, Enrico and Enrico, thank you so much for joining me today. I do appreciate your time and effort in explaining what this is all about. And of course, if you want to see this saddle, for those of you listening, sellitalia.com, you can read all about it, see the photos. You can even add it to the cart and order one or find a store where you can buy one yourself. There are two widths that you can choose from. There's lots of options uh, other than the 3D printed saddle as well on the website. I would definitely encourage you to go check it out. If you have questions about this episode of the Tech Podcast or any of the episodes of the Tech Podcast, please do feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on Twitter at SlowGuyFastRide or on Instagram at SlowGuyOnTheFastRide. And I will happily uh, pester the Enricos again with your questions if you have any. Gentlemen, thank you once again for joining me today. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And for those of you listening, thank you for listening. As always, it's wonderful to have you to talk tech and gear nerdery. We will catch you on the next episode of the Ruler podcast. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.